the Delta variant wave, and what's next as we head into the fall. It's known in epidemiology that these things do tend to burn themselves out. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego's tough eviction ban expired just days ago, and already tenants are being pushed out. We're paying our bills on time. We're doing everything required, but we got to leave. And now I don't know where to go. Chula Vista surveillance technology and the potential for privacy violations. Also, hear about the region's best food and wine, just 90 minutes south of the border. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Scripps Health announced its highest daily death count over the weekend, with nearly all of the deaths occurring in unvaccinated patients. In a bit of better news, San Diego County announced yesterday its lowest number of new cases since July. So where does that leave us with the current Delta variant wave? And what can we expect from the pandemic this fall? To help answer some of those questions, we are joined by San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we've been getting some mixed news lately when it comes to the pandemic. On one hand, uh, San Diego County just announced the lowest number of new cases since July, whereas Scripps announced a record number of COVID deaths over the holiday weekend. So where exactly are we? Uh, well, I'd say we're where we have always been, uh, you know, what the uh, what the epidemiologists have been telling us uh, for a long time, uh, even before this pandemic, it's kind of accepted wisdom in, in epidemiology that you will see deaths uh, lag cases. Uh, deaths are seen as what they call a lagging indicator. And, and if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, a, a larger number of people get sick and a certain percentage of them get hospitalized and they're in the hospital for a while. Uh, and then some of them end up, uh, you know, getting worse and ending up in the ICU. And then a certain percentage of those uh, end up dying uh, from their disease, but it, it's not like it all happens right away. You know, it takes some time for people to get sick enough to feel like they need to go to the hospital. It takes some more time uh, once they're in the hospital and getting on oxygen and what have you to get bad enough that they end up dying. So so it, it's always the case, and it was the case uh, last year and even early this year uh, that we saw a bump in deaths kind of after the major surge of cases. So it, it seems like it follows the normal pattern. I saw that the county announced uh, 519 uh, new cases yesterday on their daily report. Um, 
you know, we should understand that uh, a single day does not a trend make. I, I think uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we saw the daily total get down to something around 600, uh, and then the subsequent day pop back up over 1,000 and stayed generally at or over 1,000 for for quite a bit longer, uh, many days after that. So, so uh, you know, what, what I think we'd want to see to get a feeling that this thing is uh, decelerating is to see, uh, you know, a significant number of days that are significantly uh, smaller uh, in case totals than, uh, than what we've seen recently. So what are you hearing from health officials about when the current Delta variant surge may end? You know, they're all very, very nervous about trying to predict that, uh, you know, they, they are a cautious bunch. Um, and, and so I really haven't heard much chatter at all uh, from folks really uh, discussing too often, at least locally. You've seen some national uh, speculation that, that we may have uh, reached and passed the peak. I uh, haven't heard much uh, uh, speculation from our, our local uh, epidemiology crew. They've, they've they're no longer having press conferences and talking about this regularly. Uh, so, you know, they put out their weekly report and are generally relatively mum about what it says. Uh, but, you know, if you look, if you look, for example, at the uh, epi chart out of Florida that has had just a massive surge and had a much, much lower vaccination rate than California's, uh, it sure looks like they're past the peak in Florida. Uh, I was looking earlier today. Uh, at Mississippi, a little less dramatic drop there, but definitely looks like it's on a downward trajectory. Uh, you know, if you just think about it, uh, you know, this this uh, Delta variant is thought to be quite a bit more transmissible uh, than other types that came before it. And so, uh, you know, if it's spreading in an unvaccinated population, it's it's spreading very quickly and you get a month or two into that and, and you, you think about it kind of burning itself out, kind of spreading into all the, the pockets of unvaccinated folks and even vaccinated folks uh, that it can reach. Uh, and so at some point, uh, you know, it's, it's known in epidemiology that these things do tend to burn themselves out uh, more quickly if you, if you have a, a much less uh, rigorous focus on masking and, and staying home and the kind of things that were able to slow, slow down the spread quite a lot last year. We've been hearing about a new variant, the Mu variant. California has the highest cases with more than 300. 167 of those have been identified in Los Angeles County. What do we know about this variant so far? Really, what we know is that it has quite a few mutations. I read that it has 17 different mutations um, and six on the spike protein that allows it to bind with certain receptors in our body that uh, allows it to get in and, and uh, cause very severe disease in a minority of people. Um, and, uh, you know, we also know that it appears from what the studies are showing that it is um, not quite as highly transmissible as the, the Delta variant that's currently in circulation. There have been some studies from Belgium and elsewhere that indicate that perhaps it might be uh, a little uh, better at causing death. Uh, it might be a little better at escaping uh, immunity, either from the vaccine or natural immunity that you might have gotten from getting infected by the disease, uh, by the virus, I'm sorry. Um, but it doesn't appear, at least from what I've read, uh, to spread quite as readily as Delta. And, uh, you know, what the epidemiologists and virologists will tend to tell you is that the uh, the virus that's best at spreading is the one that kind of gains dominance in a community of people. Uh, it kind of outcompetes uh, 
uh, other viruses. So, so I've seen some uh, talk in in epidemiolo- epidemiological circles that it, it, it may be a, a less less of a concern than Delta was, just because it maybe doesn't spread as quite as easily as Delta does. How likely do you think it is that it's already here in San Diego? I think it's likely. I mean, I don't know. I would caution you to speak to an epidemiologist about that. <laughs> this is my layman's uh, understanding of things uh, you should understand. And uh, But, you know, it, it seems like uh, the, the problem is that, you know, the only way that you tell that a variant is present in a community is to take a sample that's positive uh, and do some additional genetic sequencing work to identify what, what variant it is. Uh, and so they aren't able to um, test every single uh, positive test that happens uh, in San Diego or anywhere else in the world. So, uh, so it's there's probably some of it floating around out there. We're a pretty big city with uh, a lot of coming and going. So, you know, it would stand to reason that, that there would be some of it. The question is, is it really going to be able to take off like wildfire, like Delta did? And and what the what the epidemiology community seems to be saying at the moment is that it's uh, it would it would really it struggle a bit to compete with Delta. From what you're seeing right now, what's the outlook for San Diego when it comes to COVID heading into the fall and looking toward the holidays? Is there room for optimism and a return to normal or what? I mean, I, I hesitate to predict the future. As a journalist, I try to cover what's happening now. <laughs> but um, generally, I'd, I'd say that, uh, you know, if you start to see, uh, you know, if this this latest uh, case total is an indication that, that we've peaked, um, then, then that is definitely a positive sign for the fall. Uh, you know, I mean, you can always have another variant uh, come roaring in, as we saw with Delta, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're uh, kind of rolling into flu season as well. And so uh, even a lower level of COVID uh, alongside a, uh, a more fierce flu season than we saw last year could still present a lot of um, problems for uh, for our healthcare resources uh, at all levels so um yeah i'm a little a little cautious about uh trying to th- think too far in the future here it just seems like every time we think we've got it figured out with covid it throws us another uh, curveball so <laughs> i'll uh, i'll say that my crystal ball is a little cloudy at this point i've been speaking with paul sisson healthcare reporter for the san diego union tribune paul thank you very much for joining us today Thank you for having me. San Diego County's tough eviction protection ended a few weeks ago on August 14th, and tenants are already feeling the effects. KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim says tenants are being legally pushed out as investors look to capitalize on the region's rising rents. Frances Houston and her daughter Vanessa are packing up everything they own. It's all packed up to leave, you know, and I still have clothes in the closet, so we have to get more boxes, you know, to put our things in. But that's about it. That's all we've been doing since they told us we had to move. Last month, their new landlord said they had to leave their El Cajon apartment. It wasn't just them. Their apartment complex was sold to a new owner this summer. Shortly after, they, along with their neighbors, most of whom are immigrants or senior citizens on fixed incomes, were told their leases were being terminated to remodel the apartments. Vanessa Houston thinks there's another reason. They can't say evict if you're doing, like, if you know, like COVAC or something like that, because people can sue. So what they're doing, they're saying, oh, well, let's remodel and get these people out and raise the rent. 
up until mid-August, San Diego County had an eviction ban that prohibited landlords from pushing people out for reasons like remodeling. But that expired, and the statewide eviction ban's protections don't go as far. Houston currently pays $1,100 a month and can't afford to pay the $1,550 the apartment will cost after renovations. I was figuring like maybe 13, 12 or 13 is the best we can do, you know, for just a one bedroom, just for my mom and I. And um, nobody has that. Nobody. Raising rents after fixing up a place is common practice and perfectly legal, says Terry Moore, a landlord and the co-owner of ACI, a San Diego income property brokerage firm. So for the last 40 years, the textbook solution was buy the building with the right things wrong with it. If it's got ugly paint, if it has lousy management, has poor tenants, has poor landscaping, that's the right thing wrong with it. You fix that and you can rent it for more. But right now, he says, things are different. After 30 years in the business, he's never seen such a high demand for apartment complexes. He says rents will continue to rise and believes building more apartment complexes will lower high costs, but not anytime soon and not in time for everyone. Things are expensive in California and not everybody can afford to live in paradise. Across the county in Chula Vista, more residents are being pushed out. Charles Canizales, a student, and his mother Gloria have lived in their apartment for 12 years. Actually, I was born in this hospital right next to our house. I, I attended Vista Square Elementary School right in front of our door. Like the Houstons in El Cajon, their apartment complex was sold to a new owner and they were asked to leave. Canizales says the new landlord took down their door numbers, took away their doorbells, and routinely turns off their water without proper warning. We reached out to the company Robert Stack & Associates, but they refused to comment. Canizales is worried about the toll it's taking on his parents. My mom actually just got, she got sick, she got shingles because of the stress, and then that's really what worries me the most. The Canizales don't want to go away quietly. Instead, they joined ACE, a local tenants group, and are demanding stronger tenant protections. Gloria Canizales wants people to join together. She says that help is out there, and it's vital that community members rely on each other during these hard times. Because united, they are strong. Mom, my backpack, can you hand me that? It's right there by your feet. Meanwhile, in El Cajon, the Houstons are still packing up to leave. By your feet, Mom. Vanessa is her mother's primary caretaker, and her federal unemployment check ended last week. We're paying our bills on time. We're doing everything required, but we got to leave. And now I don't know where to go. She's worried her credit score is too low to get another apartment and fears she and her mother could end up with no place to live. And with the last of the statewide eviction protections set to expire at the end of the month, the Houstons could be the first of many displacements on the horizon. Joining me is KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. And Christina, welcome. Hey, Maureen. So the first family you profiled, the Houstons, had a lease but was terminated to allow the owners to renovate. Is that a standard part of lease agreements? Yes, that's right, Maureen. So if you're on a month-to-month lease, which is what the Houstons were on, landlords can terminate your lease. And especially in this case, they were able to terminate the lease for something like remodeling, which is what they were told uh, is going to happen to their apartment. I think it's worth noting, though, that before AB 1482, which actually passed in 2019 and started and took effect in 2020, landlords didn't have to give any reason at all. So in some ways, like it's difficult to hear this, but 
they had to give a reason. And that that in itself is something new. And are the owners required to at least offer the tenants their old apartment back after renovations if the tenants can afford it? They are not. So landlords are not required to offer their tenants back any of their apartments. In the Houston's case, they were offered the ability to go back, but they just simply can't afford it. Um, I do think it's worth noting, though, that in some cities like Los Angeles, uh, they don't allow landlords to terminate tenancies for repairs and in some cases are actually responsible for relocating that tenant. But in this case, no, they terminated the lease and there is no law that makes them have to give the apartment back to the Houstons. Now, you spoke to the co-owner of a San Diego income property brokerage. Tell us more about what he said about the demand by investors to buy up apartment complexes. That's right. I spoke with Terry Moore of ACI, and right now he estimates that there are around 1,500 investors that are looking to buy around 350 units or apartment complexes. And he says it's the most competitive he's ever seen in the past 30 years that he's been in the business. So what's happening is that they're outbidding each other. And what's driving that is that there's a lot of interest and there's not a lot of supply. But I think what's really interesting is that what's driving this interest is that they see the San Diego rental industry as a really secure and stable investment. Rents have been on the rise here for seven consecutive months, and the average rent increased around 15% since last year. So, you know, I think when we throw around percentages, it's hard for people to grasp that. So let's say you were paying $2,000 a month last year, a 15% increase would be around $300 more a month. And and that adds up for people. And it's also an investment for those who are in fact landlords. The state eviction ban is still in effect. So why doesn't it cover situations like this? Right. So the statewide ban makes it so landlords need to give a reason at all for ending a lease or evicting someone. And those reasons are called just causes, which includes things like nuisance, serious property damage, or criminal activity. You know, right now, non-payment with all the rental relief is also waived. So the statewide protections, which expire on September 30th, they do allow landlords to evict or terminate leases if the landlords plan to move back in themselves or if they plan to make significant repairs to the property, which is what we're seeing with both the Houstons and the Gunnysides. That is a loophole that exists within the current protections. Now, the family in Chula Vista that's being pushed out, they are trying to push back by joining ACCE. Tell us more about that group. Right. ACE, or Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, has been working with tenants around San Diego County by providing free legal counsel clinics to make sure that tenants know their rights. I mean, especially during the pandemic, there's been so many local, state, and federal laws. They're just making sure that renters and tenants really know what their rights are. They also organize tenants in direct action. For instance, ACE last week organized a march for the Canizales family in which they actually went to the offices of the new landlord to demand that they be able to stay. A lot of their work is getting people just more aware of what's happening, but they're also asking local officials to pass stronger tenant laws. They're also really looking to reform that Ellis Act, which allows landlords to evict tenants from rent-controlled properties if they're planning to leave the rental business altogether. So what options do tenants have if they can't afford the high rents after a renovation? I think that's the big issue that we're seeing, Maureen. What happens when people can't afford to live in San Diego? There's not a lot. I know the Houstons were going to look into applying for Section 8 housing, but that has a very long wait list. 
Um, but I do know that the County of San Diego just started a security deposit assistance program just last week. And that's going to help renters pay their security deposits. And that's a really big reminder that when people move, there's a lot of costs associated with moving like security deposits. So that is one program that the county has. But I think you're really hitting the nail on the head, which is what's really going to happen if people can't afford to stay in San Diego? What does that mean for our neighborhoods? And what's it going to mean for our county? What do you think we're going to see September 30th when the state eviction ban expires? Yeah, I spoke with Gil Vera. He's the senior housing attorney at San Diego Legal Aid. And he says that what we're seeing with the Houstons is a soft opening of what he expects to see happen when the when the statewide eviction ban ends. So what he means by that is, you know, the Houstons and the Canizales, they got their leases terminated just days after the countywide and much stricter eviction ban ended. So what he's saying is like when that last one in the state goes, he does expect landlords to start evicting people. And he expects the courts to be packed, you know, two months from now, and that we'll really start to see this crisis right around the holidays. I've been speaking with KPBS race and equity reporter, Christina Kim. Christina, thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. When does crime-fighting technology begin to violate a citizen's privacy? That's the issue Chula Vista is about to grapple with as that city's police department continues its quest to become a real-time crime center. Chula Vista officials say they're working on a citywide privacy policy to guard against violations by police drone surveillance, license plate readers, and other forms of data collection. But city leaders still support police efforts to use surveillance technology as a necessary tool in light of a rising crime rate and a growing population. Joining me is reporter Jesse Marks, who investigated Chula Vista's surveillance program for Voice of San Diego. And Jesse, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Marie. What is a real-time crime center, and how does it differ from standard policing? So a real-time crime center is basically a technology hub, and it's where police officers and analysts can monitor what's happening around town. 
And so they usually do this by taking the various tools that they already have at their disposal and they bring them together into a single place, quite literally a single interface, you could say. So visually, it usually tends to translate into a wall of computer screens, of monitors that are capturing video and information streams. And it's everything from camera feeds to dispatch and mapping software, jail records, and of course, also drones and license plate readers. The general purpose of the initiative is to gather as much intelligence as possible and to create what's known as situational awareness so that officers who are working back at the police department can serve as the eyes and ears for emergency responders out in the field. Is this an effort police departments have taken up across the country? Yes, it is. In in fact, real-time crime centers have been around for several years. So what Chula Vista is actually doing is not unique in that sense. One group of researchers I found had counted 80 real-time crime centers across the United States, and they differ in their scopes because they differ in the types of devices that they might rely on or the software that they might use. But they all point to the same thing, which is a desire to create a high-tech police department that monitors the cityscape and engages in data-driven policing. And so the idea is that by layering different devices and software on top of one another, a police department can learn more longer term about crime in their communities and where it might occur next. There's been criticism about Chula Vista's police use of drones and license plate readers. What do critics say about how they're being used? So there are a couple of criticisms that are aimed at drones. For starters, the city is flying these unmanned aerial vehicles above people's houses and their backyards where there's typically a reasonable expectation of privacy. So you'll often hear advocates argue that the technology, while it's well-meaning, is nonetheless invasive. The Chula Vista Police Department believes that drones will help de-escalate potentially tense and deadly situations. And one of the examples that they come back to time and time and again when they give these presentations and talk to the community is the example of a man who was told through 911 to be carrying a firearm or what was believed to be a firearm and looked like a firearm. So the police department sent out a drone to go investigate and found out that it was actually a lighter in that person's hand. And so the city would argue that that was a situation in which they were able to de-escalate a situation that could have gotten tense, potentially deadly, before they sent officers in to confront him. But at the same time, criminal justice advocates will point out that they are, and because the city is increasingly relying on these sort of robotic scouts, literally these eyes in the sky, you're creating a certain amount of distance between the communities that you serve and the police officers themselves, which undermines the larger task of community-oriented policing. And so when it comes to license plate readers, the main controversy there involves the sharing of data because license plate readers basically take a picture. They're a camera often attached to a vehicle, but they take a picture of another vehicle and then they log that information, where the car was, at what time. And the police department says that information is useful in finding, say, a stolen vehicle or to look for the owner of a vehicle who was suspected of a crime. But we know based on the Union Tribune's reporting late last year that the city was also sharing information with immigration authorities through its subscription service for the license plate readers. So the city's still using that technology, but it did sever its data sharing with immigration authorities. And then the city council in April came back and said, we're going to approve it for another year, but we're going to try to invite more oversight over it. Some critics of the increased surveillance technology say it's a kind of invisible form of the militarization of police departments. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, so much of the technology that's ending up in the hands of cities and police departments, you know, everything from motion sensors to drones to facial recognition was developed and tested for and by the military. And it became useful, especially after September 11th in the global war on terror, as well as efforts by the U.S. and other governments to engage in counterinsurgency. So the fact that those same devices are being purchased by cities and counties and then being rolled out on domestic soil against one's own neighbors is what's causing concern. So I, in my piece, spoke to one advocate for open government who said we typically think of militarization of police departments as tanks and riot gear, but there's also an argument that the technology running behind the scenes meets the same definition. It's just harder to spot. One essential point that's sometimes overlooked is, is this surveillance and data collection effective against fighting crime? What do we know about that in Chula Vista? That's a debatable point. So if you take, for instance, license plate readers, Chula Vista will say, yes, it has obviously helped us to fight crime. It's been useful in finding stolen vehicles, tracking people who've been accused of crimes. But if you take a step back, you'll find that very few of the hits that the license plate reader actually gets are in connection with the person of interest. So what I mean by that is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital rights group, they analyzed public records earlier this year from Chula Vista and other cities. And they found that between 2018 and 2019, Chula Vista had gotten a hit on a vehicle of interest only 0.03% of the time. So that raises a constitutional question because the data that you're gathering up could reveal quite a lot about people's travel habits and daily routines, which is accessible by only a few keystrokes. But at the same time, those people haven't actually been accused of crime. Now, a new citizen's privacy policy is reportedly in the works by Chula Vista's chief innovation officer. When is that intended to be released? So that's intended to be released in the fall. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about it at the moment, what it's going to look like, because officials haven't offered very many details. But it is clearly coming in reaction to the press that the city has gotten over the last year, as well as the pushback from community groups. There was at least one protest that I can remember off the top of my head. So we'll know more when that draft surfaces in a few months. But also at the same time, Councilman Steve Padilla told me that he's working on a separate proposal for potentially the creation of a new commission that could independently review the city's use of technology to make sure it's transparent and it respects the laws around personal privacy. But again, we're still waiting on the details for that. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Jesse Marks. Jesse, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In a few days, the country will mark the 20th anniversary of a national tragedy, one that resulted in a conflict that ended only a week ago. And while the national media's reaction in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was one of unity and support for armed forces, attitudes about the protracted armed conflicts have changed dramatically. As we look back on the 20 years since 9-11, we also look back on how American media has changed its coverage of one of the most complex armed conflicts of the 21st century. Joining me with more is Esteban Del Rio, a professor of communication studies at USD. Esteban, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So how did America's media initially react to 9-11 and the prospect of war in the Middle East? Well, I think that it's really important to understand, especially 20 years ago, that the media's relationship with the government is actually one that is intertwined. So a lot of times we think about the media being independent of the government and the Constitution guarantees that. But through the routines of news gathering, 
um, journalism is generally deferential to a lot of uh, what public officials say, and certainly to the mood of its readers, listeners, and viewers. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of frustration, there was a lot of curiosity, there was a lot of fear at the time. And the Bush administration, you know, was pretty forceful in its response and focusing in on the Taliban who controlled Afghanistan, um, their harboring of al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And so while there was a lot of debate about what should happen at the time, including mass protests uh, as, as military action began to seem as though it was inevitable all around the world, including in the United States, um, there was a veil of patriotism, as one critic put it, that descended on a media, especially television. In the weeks following the attacks, the Bush administration enjoyed approval ratings greater than 85 percent. Was there much room for criticism of his foreign policy decisions in that period? No, there was not. In fact, at the time, and I remember this was my first semester teaching USD uh, 20 years ago, and we were we were following along in my class about what was happening. You know, there were there would be pundits you know, in kind of CNN or, or, or cable TV news roundtables that would try to kind of, you know, tell the story with a little bit more nuance. And the reaction they would be getting is, so do you support the terrorists? It was very dualistic. It was very either or. And just there, was, there wasn't a lot of room for dissent at the time. Do you think that the American media failed at the time to really interrogate some of the reasons we ended up going to war? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, part of the code of ethics for journalists is to seek truth and report it and act independently. There was too much deference to authority. There was too much um, disinterest in upsetting the mood of the public, which, like I said, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of energy for revenge. There wasn't a measured critical response in mainstream media at the time. The lack of nuanced deliberation that was not made possible by a mature, thoughtful, reflective journalistic sphere is really regrettable. And, you know, 20 years later, you can see that. Of course, students of history would have known that the images from the airport at the end of last month were probably largely inevitable. This was kind of baked into the beginning if you understood, you know, this story of Afghanistan, what was happening before, and probably what will happen in the future. You know, how did that veil of patriotism that you mentioned affect how the war on terror and the war for hearts and minds uh, was reported on, especially with regards to domestic policy decisions like the Patriot Act? Everything that kind of came out of the war on terror, and again, this is, we declared war on a concept, a tactic. You know, I mean, I'll ask students, you know, what, what was Al-Qaeda's beef with the United States, right? And they just didn't know then, and they don't know now. In other words, you know, one critic said at the time, especially in the summer of 2001, that we were on vacation from history. If you remember kind of thinking about, you know, the decision to go to war in Iraq, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post did major kind of mea culpa internal investigations about the mistakes that were made. Um, we didn't, we haven't really seen that about Afghanistan, and I think perhaps, you know, Kind of at least for now, this bookend of 20 years and a complete U.S. withdrawal for now, you know, might afford journalists themselves some time to reflect back with a longer memory and a larger memory about, you know, what did journalism do to contribute and how can it work to create a more informed, deliberative public? What role did the media play, you think, in perpetuating harmful stereotypes of the time, such as the discrimination and the surveillance and profiling of Muslims? Yeah, I think that the U.S. media was initially very careful 
if you think about the time between the September 11th terror attacks and when we started the war in Afghanistan, the media was actually rather careful to try to understand what was happening without uh, kind of falling into the stereotypes that happened during the Oklahoma City bombing when it was assumed that it was Islamic terrorism. Um, I think that in, initially that was the case during this time when decisions were being made about what to do, you know, this kind of deliberative space between the attacks and the war in Afghanistan. I think that TV in general has a hard time with this. Television news uses images of terrorists at the time of, of the Taliban in such a way that there's often slippage between this, the images you see and then appearing opinions about the people that you see around you in your community. We know that the Muslim community in San Diego was uh, the victim of a number of hate crimes and property damage. And I, I think that in general, if you talk about the news media and the aggregate, I think that initially there was some care taken, but then we just fell into a lot of the shorthand for, you know, what is it that the United States wants to do and why, right? Who who are the bad people? And we, we see that, you know, pe people a lot of readers, viewers, and listeners don't necessarily have a very sophisticated way of making some of the differences between their neighbor who goes to mosque and and the, the people that they're being told are evil on TV. In the time surrounding the U.S.'s departure from Afghanistan, we've seen a lot of media coverage depicting the conflict itself as an unnecessary and misguided war effort. How did that perception change over time, you think? Yeah, I think that perception really kind of grew through a distance between the, the like the reason why it first happened, why the United States decided to do regime change in Afghanistan, to occupy the country, to try to build up democratic institutions. Between that, when people really, I think there's a lot of people who really believed it was the right thing to do. You know, 20 years later, you know, between successive administrations with different political constituencies, the story going into the background, people not knowing a lot of folks who served, uh, certainly that, you know, the, there's no draft. Um, you know, there's not, there wasn't that level of attention like there was at the beginning of the war. And so, like every story that would come out of Afghanistan over the last 20, especially the last, you know, 17 years, um, you know, could fit pretty easily into, um, you know, another reason why it's a mistake. You know, if there were U.S. soldiers killed, if there was a really poor strategic decision, if we make a decision to, cert, to do a troop surge, if we decide to negotiate with the Taliban, when we decide to exit, all of these things, they are filled with partisan rancor, with dissent, you know, questioning about why are we there. Um, and I think that, 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 that had a lot to do with the way that things changed. I've been speaking with Esteban Del Rio, a professor of communication studies at USD. Esteban, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. 
Local foodies know that if you're looking for some of the best food and wine in the region, Valle de Guadalupe is where you go. Valle is a farm region about 90 minutes south of the U.S.-Mexico border. It's an area just outside of Ensenada that's undergone explosive growth in recent years and become famous worldwide for its culinary offerings. But when the pandemic hit, the flood of tourist traffic to the region turned into barely a trickle. KPBS-TV recently aired a new one-hour special about how one chef in the Valle, Drew Deckman, weathered the pandemic storm. The special is called Ingrediente. And in a new Port of Entry episode, producers and host Kinsey Moreland and Alan Lilienthal went to Valle and talked to the show's producer, Jill Bond, and Chef Drew about the story that unfolded for the cameras. What are the origins of Ingrediente? Is it like going to be an ongoing series of different ingredients and chefs who use them, or was it specifically just this one-off on Yeah, so we, Drew. you know, the, the idea this all came about was when uh, I met Drew, we were doing a, a documentary on the region, the valley, because it's been growing so much. And I was interviewing all the different chefs just because there's so much happening and it's a very exciting time and and met Drew and you know he's a Mexican himself he's American born Michelin star chef and after talking with him um, I presented this idea to PBS that what if we could show the valley in Drew's eyes so we started filming the series and then the pandemic hit and obviously we had to pivot and figure out what we were going to do and we were quarantined here. Aj and I, my husband, live here part-time most of the time. And I was like, Drew, can we come and hang out with you? <laughs> Would you mind if we stopped by the restaurant every day? Because he fed his staff every single day for people of his staff, their families. He also fed 200 fishermen every single week. And so he was here and a very limited staff were here cooking every single day. And I thought, well, let's just put the cameras on. Uh, didn't have a, a team, but we had ourselves and started with the iPhone. And then we thought we would do some Instagram stories. But anyway, we had a good time and we were just hanging out. And then I was watching unfold the experience of almost every restaurateur, what they must be going through. There was cautious optimism in the beginning and then it turned into maybe a little bit of desperation and then it turned into the one scene where he just you know is done and then it comes back to the rebirth and the whole hero's journey yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's what we captured and I think it's a beautiful story Yeah, it was, it was interesting because basically when the world shut down, the really very short amount of time prior to that, it wasn't a gradual kind of you know trickling off. We had a completely full restaurant the two months before and then literally from a Monday to a Saturday, like all the reservations like canceled, like night and day, like somebody turned off a faucet and we just sort of watched the reservations go down and the government had not really done anything. The government wasn't saying anything. The government wasn't really giving any indications. And so when I saw that, I was like, look, we just need, we need to stop. We need to be an example and just shut it down. It was 23rd of March, but March, April, May, June, you know, we're going into the high season. So we grow about 90% of all of our vegetables that we serve in the restaurant. So I have three farms that produce for us and the 23rd of March, those farms were full and ready and just 
overflowing with everything that we had planted to get ready for high wow. season. So what do you do with the food? Right? When we closed, we had uh, you know, a walk-in cooler full of proteins because the purchase was made for the week and then all of a sudden the world shuts off. And so it's like, all right, well, you know, how do we at least put this nourishment into somebody's body as opposed to trash? So that's when we, we started to do the, the food for staff. And then a local fish distributor here, uh, Hamat, came to us and it's like, look, we have this idea. We've got a lot of people that are willing to, to donate proteins. You've got your garden. You know, let's let's do some good. And I, I guess kind of in the end, there's there's only two kinds of people in the world, right? The ones that run away from fires and the ones that run toward fires. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's much in between. And so we were in a position where we were able to run toward the fire. I think we helped uh, a lot of people during the time. It's incredible, yeah. That is an incredible and very well put. But I do think there's another kind of person, I have to say. The people who just, people who just watch, fi watch the fires like, watch with their iPhones, just like, right? yeah, they're not running, they're not hey, scared. <laughs> <laughs> that is the reality. Somebody's got to document the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yesterday we closed, we closed Deckman's, um, and so today we're packing. Uh, still have quite a few of the team members here today. Uh, that'll diminish, start going down. Uh, today we're packing up the entire restaurant, putting it away, essentially, not leaving anything out here. We, we don't know how long this is going to last. Our restaurant family, it's 50 families that most of them are married and have children. Extend that out and you know you start talking about 200 people that live on a daily basis here from the restaurant. So what I've promised uh, our team is that every day we're gonna cook uh, a family meal. That each one of them has, uh, has the right to take up the food for four people. We're gonna cook for staff as long as we can. Uh, we've contacted uh, our ranchers and our our purveyors and everybody wants to help. I'm curious if this, the, the, the tradition that was born of the pandemic where you like feed the staff and their families, like how is that continuing? Is how, how did that change the vibe of, I'm sure that changes the culture of how the, the workers relate to you and each other? We always provide a family meal every day for all the staff. But it, when we're open, it's only for that person that's here. So what we did when we closed, now everybody's out of a job, their, their spouse is out of a job. So we prepared food for them to take home with them for up to four people per employee. So they can now guarantee every day they're gonna have a hot meal that they can take home and there's food for the family. Just to sort of take away a little bit of, of the the worry that everybody had on their shoulders. When the pandemic hit, a lot of p places in the cities, um, San Diego, LA, did a lot of takeout and they were able to survive. They were able to really continue their, their operations and not do so bad and keep their, they didn't have that opportunity here. Um, so it was, I think, a lot more dramatic for the workers, for the chefs, for the wineries, for all the businesses, because they just didn't have anybody coming in. So the whole place literally shut down. And I just think that was really hard, and I think that probably was likely for almost all tourist vacation spots. 
But yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. And that was Ingrediente producer Jill Bond and chef Drew Deckman talking with Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal and producer Kinsey Moreland. To hear the full episode with Drew and Jill, find Port of Entry wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can watch Ingrediente online anytime at video.kpbs.org or via the free PBS video app.